good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Get in the Herd. My name is Nathan Mitchell, and what this is a uh, special Friday edition here at 2 p.m. Our co-host is Alex Bond, the incomparable, the the insurmountable, the brilliant. And our special guest today coming in to us from the fan, not from the fan, from the museum district, is David Aldridge. David Aldridge um, is, uh, well, you know what? I'm going to let David introduce himself. David, welcome to the show. Uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself, say who you are, why you're here. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, thrilled to be chatting with y'all. Um, and uh, gosh, that's a little bit of a pressure to introduce myself. Um, how, how would I say this? I guess I am a uh, lifelong community organizer at this point. I've been uh, working and organizing it in one capacity or another, uh, whether that's on electoral campaigns, like, you know, for delegate, for president, that sort of thing, or issue-based uh, things like, you know, uh, making it so that uh, Boy Scouts can be openly uh, free about their sexuality um, in the Boy Scouts of America with uh, Scouts for Equality. That was one other thing I did. And then I've even done organizing in like the weird private sector as well uh, for that company that some of you may be familiar with called Nextdoor, which is like the social media for neighborhoods. Um, we actually applied community organizing techniques there to help them grow their market penetration. Um, and then beyond that, I'm, I'm a guy who cares a lot about kind of the recovery community in general, as you know, Nathan. Um, and uh, I'm thrilled to just be chatting with you all. I think we're going to be talking today kind of about how the world has changed, <laughs> to put it mildly, in the last month and a half or so, and how uh, folks are adapting to that in the advocacy and the campaign and kind of the political space in general. David, thank you for coming, and thank you um, again for introducing yourself. Um, I know uh, you basically just did my job there for me, and I appreciate that. <laughs> One thing that we do in the recovery space is we start to learn how to tell our stories. Um, we start to learn how to tell our stories effectively um, without a lot of the shame, the blame, and the, the you know, I, I tend to ramble on. So without the rambling on, um, and to get a, a favorable outcome, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, advocacy work that we learn to do because we have to learn how to advocate for ourselves. And one thing that I do, and I did this this morning in a group with our participants, was getting getting us um, acclimated to saying things about ourselves that we're proud of. In recovery, uh, in active using, you know, as, as many of, as you know, and many other people here know, you know, I'm a person in recovery from substance use disorder and in active addiction, it was very hard for me to identify things about myself I liked. And so being able to start getting into that recovery process and getting into that space about, you know, hey, my name is Nathan and I'm a resourceful person. You know, my name is Nathan and I have a voice. You know, my name is Nathan and I matter. You know, and that 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 becomes important for me. And I see you do that. And you've been very good about bringing uh, people together, candidates together, um, who I know you've been leading to the water. I appreciate that. And uh I appreciate you. And so welcome to the show. I know you've got some exciting things going on in your in your sphere. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that and see how that might, you know, even jive with what we're doing here. So sure. Sure. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, so like I mentioned, I've, I've been working in, in these fields for a while. And uh, it, it's interesting you talk about stories because stories are actually one of the most important tools in any organizer's tool belt. That's one of the lessons that I try to ingrain upon every single person I teach. Uh, because I think stories, um, they help us convey our values. And the way that we connect with others is based upon mutually shared values. And when you have that connection, that's what leads to collective action. Um, whether that's, you know, election or whether that's legislation or whether that's a million things. 
Um, but what I'm trying to do these days is really help people navigate, uh, like I said, the shifting ground that we are on right now, um, particularly because this is a really important election year. Um, I'm not going to get too political on you all, but I think it's fascinating that one guy uh, said something yesterday and then uh, the company Lysol had to put out an official statement. Um, I think that kind of <laughs> demonstrates where we're at these days and why it's so important that people take uh, November so incredibly seriously for themselves um, and why the campaigns have a lot of work to do. Because while it's not just the presidential campaign that's on the top of the ticket, there's a lot of other things that are on uh, election as well, including a number of local races here in uh, Richmond, too. And I know that a lot of folks um, who do similar work to I do that I do, um, they called me. Uh, in the weeks after after the shutdown happened, after everyone went into quarantine, after self-isolation uh, was put into place for, for very good reason. And they said, how do, how do we go about doing this? What do we do? And I stopped and I thought about it and I said, you know, th this actually is pretty similar to some of the things that I've done in my past. Um, whether that was managing remote teams across the nation, whether that was working to uh, influence decision makers in Congress and get them to actually take votes that I wanted them to take or various things like that. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to distill uh, the many experiences I've had, the good and the bad, because I think you can learn a lot from your mistakes just as much from your successes um, and try to put that into some actionable tips uh, for folks who uh, are organizing, whether they are doing it in a professional capacity or whether they're doing it in a volunteer capacity um, to help them really uh, keep making sure that the show must go on. So I've got a website that I'm uh, putting out these tips out in uh, pretty regular installments um, in a kind of a blog format. Uh, and that website is scrappyorganizing.com, um, which is pretty exciting to do. It's kind of the first thing, uh, first time I've ever actually had a chance to, to really build a whole website and and uh, <laughs> put uh, all that out there, which is exciting. Um, I'm also trying to put together some Facebook groups uh, for organizers to actually use as sharing best practices. Um, and then I'm doing what I can to just kind of poke and prod campaigns from the outside uh, to get them to uh, understand how what they have been trying to do for years is not that different in this new environment. It's just that the tools have changed, the turf has changed, but the game is still essentially the same. And I hope that whatever knowledge I can provide um, will be of value to these folks or, or even folks who are just trying to uh, figure out how to work from home. Sure. You know, one of the things, um, this was my first year working uh, with the general, well, going to the general assembly and doing direct, you know, direct advocacy work um, at the General Assembly. And the big takeaway that I got, um, and I'm, I'm a face-to-face -face guy. You know, I like the face-to-face. -face. Um, I feel like I get more conveyed when I can make a, a very personal connection with it. So it's, so this is, this is trying on me here. Um, but what I find that what I've really learned is um, being more efficient in the way I do my work. Like for instance, we were working on something with the with the the finance committee, and I spent a lot of time trying to set up meetings at every single member of the finance committee, all sixteen, I think there. And I realized this at the end of the day, I'm like, there's probably six of them that I didn't need to bother. You know, I could have just given a phone call to, or sent an email and said, hey, making sure you're still on board with what we've talked about, and that's it. You know, instead of doing all that legwork, because I'm one guy. Um, 
But, you know, I think learning from you, um, and I have, I've definitely asked you a few times for things. I haven't necessarily taken your suggestions to my detriment. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate having people around who have navigated these waters because, you know, we, we, we here at McShin and, and we in the recovery community see this as a civil rights movement. Um, and when you look at it, we are, you know, we're, what I see is, you know, we've got millions of people or at least hundreds of thousands of people and certainly thousands of people here in Virginia who are in jails and incarcerated or have their lives upheaved because of a public health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, substance use disorder has been classified as a mental health disease, mental health issue for decades. And we are still treating this as a criminal justice issue. So, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I actually just got off for a bit. Today's my first day off of probation. Congratulations. Oh, <laughs> thank awesome. you. And it's funny, I had the I had the Henrico County uh, community commonwealth attorney, excuse me, on Tuesday, and I said, Hey Shannon, make sure you say something in my favor to my PO. Um, and she, I don't know if she did or not, but whatever. And you know, I, I I still have some lingering resentments toward this because now I'm I'm a felon with an F on my report card. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I cannot run for office, which many people probably appreciate that. Um, I cannot vote. Now, I can apply to get my rights back soon, but I don't know when that is. And I'll tell you what, David, I've never owned a gun in my life, but I have never wanted to own a gun more in my life than I do now, you know, yeah. now that I do not have Second Amendment rights. And for the last two years, I had no Fourth Amendment rights. And that's simply based on a drug possession conviction. Yeah. And I think that's really effed up in this world right now, you know, that we have and the discrepancy of the law throughout the rest of the country, but also here in Virginia, where we're, you know, we're trying to make progressive steps. We need to make sure we're being included, inclusive of all people, you know, and I, I mean, felons broadly should have the rights restored, but I also think of a move towards defelonization of simple possession. You know, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the decriminalization of marijuana. I'd like to see full legalization and not because I want to go out and smoke weed. In fact, I know that I can't, um, but because I think that we're can, this movement towards locking people up, throwing the book at them, continues to become a problem later in life when we have issues with housing, issues with jobs. And so I know I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's like, where do I begin sometimes, David? You know, we have a civil rights movement here, yeah. you know, and I, yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, uh, there's a few things I would say to that. So the first I think is, um, you know, I, before we talked, I realized uh, that we, I should probably brush up myself on a little bit on uh, civil rights uh, history. Um, just so I could have a little more of an informed conversation with you from that angle. Um, Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I would say that this is exactly what we were just talking about. One of the most important aspects, most important tools that you can bring uh, to the fight for making this to your point, being viewed as a public health issue and not a criminal justice issue and not um, any sort of the detrimental effects that people sort of have always associated with. Well, think about it. The reason they have those effects associated with it is because of stories. Right. It's because of whether they're true, whether they're not. Those are the images people have put to this thing. Right. And part of your job as an advocate is to present the other stories that are out there. Stories like yourself, stories like Alex, stories that are out there showing that there is a human face behind this public health issue. And there are impacts that reverberate through society not just for that person, but for any person who is facing this sort of situation, right? Um, And I think it's really interesting, and this is where I'll go into the civil rights uh, moment here uh, aspect. So 
we always think of civil rights being this great achievement that the U.S. did really based on great individuals like Martin Luther King Jr. and great moments like nonviolence and the protests and the march in D.C. And those were all really, really important. I don't want to downplay that. But one aspect that I don't think gets talked about nearly as much is the voter registration efforts and the legislative efforts um, that really led to the whole sea tide shifting um, right around 1964. And by that, I'm talking about things like the Freedom Summer, where there were all these uh, young organizers who went into Mississippi to do voter registration. And they did that because they knew that African-Americans um, in Mississippi had some of the lowest uh, voter participatory rates. So they went in there, they did a concerted effort. We are not just going to register voters, but we are also going to educate them on how to do so. Um, there's even some data that shows that uh, they were helping African-Americans learn um, civil history because they understood that there were going to be barriers and tests, uh, just like we have coming up in, unfortunately, some of the proposed legislation these days. And they wanted to bring all those barriers down to make us so the people could actually vote, right? Um, and the other aspect being the legislative aspect being that to do something like that required a great deal of political capital, right? It required champions. It required those champions feeling like it was in their incentive uh, to put their necks on the line and push for this, right? Um, and one of the most uh, interesting examples of that was LBJ. After, unfortunately, JFK is assassinated, which is a tragic event, LBJ goes on to uh, his first, his very first address to Congress, and he says, we need to pass the Civil Rights Act right now. That would be the best thing we could do for JFK's legacy. And he plays off that emotional tinge to it. And sure enough, it creates this whole very rapid process where things are actually able to move forward in a legislative body where things are usually moving at a glacial rate, that being the United States Senate. Right. So I think what you're doing right there in finding legislative champions, whether that is on uh, the Commonwealth attorney side or whether that is folks um, in the uh, legislature itself, in the General Assembly here in Virginia. And we talked about this, uh, Nathan, you know, you want to try and find folks who this issue is very much defined into their wheelhouse because it plays into their incentives. Right. So we talked about finding folks in the courts committee. We talked about finding folks. Um, even on the budget committee, because again, to your point, uh, when you are trying to put in a rehabilitation program, that often takes resources, and that resources means it takes money. So you have to be able to make that persuasive argument. This deserves the money because, especially due to the fact that I think Virginia we have a, a balanced budget amendment, as I recall, um, that means it has to go from somewhere else, and so there has to be a push pull, and, and it's always a little bit more complicated than it is. Does that make sense? Well, it, it does. And it's not really all that complicated to me. We just take it out of the criminal justice system. But <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty idealistic. Yeah. But the reality, of course, is that, you know, we demonstrate here we can look at the numbers and 16 years of being around. McShin mm -hmm. can show you uh, through 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 good data and, and some you know data we've thrown together. But we can show you that we've saved Virginia up to 100 million dollars in the last 16 years through. Yeah. Uh, criminal justice, you know, system less involvement with the criminal justice system, bringing families back together, lowering recidivism rates. Yeah, so, so it's 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 it it does become an easy argument in my head, you know, and it's a matter of getting it out. Um, well, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Oh no, that's all I was really saying. Um, 
but it, it does make me think that um, I guess with kind of where we are right now, we have to, yes, find those political champions, but it feels like right now we kind of are on that cusp again. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you agree with that, David? I mean, the, the even just hypothetically, not exactly the same thing, but the Women's March four years ago was one of the greatest protests like of all time. So, yeah. I mean, from a, from a quality standpoint, so it kind of makes me think if it's not now, then when? Um, well, when it comes to champions and finding the right people, I mean, if you're not going to jump on the boat now, when are you? Sure, those legislators. And I think honestly, uh, sorry to cut you off here, but I think honestly that the circumstances of this moment um, are also uh, really impactful upon the necessity to uh, invest resources into recovery. Because honestly, um, I and I'll I'll let you guys speak to this because I'm sure you're more informed than I am. But from what I've seen, there are large instances of substance abuse, particularly in communities that previously had a very strong economy, and that economy is starting to erode. And I'm talking about places where, you know, uh, there used to be automotive industries or various industries that were related to that. And a lot of these jobs went away um, mainly because of automation um, and mainly because of the fact that, like, you know, one guy can do the work of five people, um, but also just the fact that the new jobs that came along were kind of entry level McDonald's work. And that's not exactly what you can feed your family. And so that led to that kind of cycle of despair that we've been hearing a lot about. And my concern is that particularly with what we're going through right now, um, those communities are just going to get walloped all over again. Right. Because we are already seeing that, you know, uh, through the, uh, the, the paycheck program that has been pushed through Congress, Um, Not enough of that money is actually going to small businesses, the small businesses that are barely holding up the lifelines out there. It's mainly going to some of the larger companies. And I worry that this is only going to exacerbate those sorts of issues. I really do. Um, And and the other thing I would say is, you know, America has unfortunately always had this ignominious distinction of being a country that incarcerates a lot of its people. Um, And you can argue whether that's a result of uh, the financial incentives for people building prisons and the the, res- the resulting jobs that come from that. Um, you can argue whether that's based on racism. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, there's a little bit of a, a racism against Asian Americans that led to opium uh, being uh, made illegal back in, uh, I think, the Chinese Exclusionary Act days. Um, and I, I do hear you when you say like now is the moment to do something about it. But I think we also have to be honest in in looking at the financial situation that every state is facing right now at this moment. Um, so just as an example of this, I saw that most recently in the Virginia budget, uh, the money that went to school counselors was cut. And, you know, intellectually, emotionally, that hurt a great deal because that was something we really fought for on Schuyler's campaign. We thought that that was really a great way to making sure that we could uh, provide for better, uh, more equitable educational outcomes across the board. But then I started thinking, well, how much of a tax hit did Virginia just take right now where we have skyrocketing rates of unemployment, right? And that means there's not as much payroll taxes. Um, That also means you're digging into the funds to actually pay those unemployment benefits back. And and you're having to make a lot of really difficult decisions because unfortunately the federal government is not really stepping up to the plate to make these states whole. So I do worry that in this moment, 
budgets are going to get tightened across the board. And it's going to be a lot of really tricky decisions that are going to be in front of legislators. Um, I personally think that the recovery community should be right at the top of the list for all the reasons I just described. Um, but without being in that room and without hearing those deliberations myself, it's very difficult for me to universally say you're wrong. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Well, and you know, some, something I, I think about when I think about the great civil rights movements of the, of this country. And I think about many of those movements, if we can look at um, some, some movement defining court cases, I'm kind mm -hmm. of veering off in another direction here. Um, and I wonder if, what 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 value do you put on perhaps trying to put some kind of court case forward? Now, right now we have you know we have the 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 legal battle with Purdue, and that's mm -hmm. very specific. I mean, it's broad, but it's specific to um, opiate overdoses and opiate use, and addiction, as we know, doesn't just follow opium uh, opiate use. It follows you know meth, amphetamines, alcohol, all the other you know all the other things. And then we could go into a whole thing about process addictions, you know, gambling, sex, etc. So, you know, I'm wondering if you think of, this. I know is a little maybe out of your wheelhouse, but you know, what sort of court cases do you think we should be looking for? I can point to you know Texas v. Lawrence um, for the LGBT movement. I can point to Loving versus Virginia, and I can right. point to uh, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. Some of these big giant cases. Um, you know, do you do you think about do you think that has value to what we're doing now? Should we be looking for something like that? I think it does, but I think I would be nervous about pushing something up to the Supreme Court at this moment because of the composition of the court. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think it was Senator uh, Senator Whitehouse, maybe Sheldon Whitehouse, who just put out a video on Twitter showing the absurd amount of five, four decisions that have come out of this court. And mm. as I understand it, and again, I'm no you know judicial scholar, so I'm not going to claim I am. But as I understand it, anytime you have a decision that is being decided on a partisan basis like that, where it's a 5-4 decision because these are the five conservative justices and these are the four liberal justices, um, anytime you have that, it is an uh, instance of a court that has issues. And if there are more cases of that, then it is an, uh, a symptom of a court that has issues. And then if you are at the historic rates, which we are now, um, then you're really in trouble, right? Because that means that there are outside factors that are really uh, weighing the process of jurisprudence um, that are not always going to lead to fair, unbiased outcomes. And I think, unfortunately, we are seeing that. And, you know, it's not even at the Supreme Court level, but you go one level lower. Uh, the reality is that, um, again, I'm trying to leave my politics out, this, out of this as much as possible. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, the amount of vacancies that were, uh, unable to be filled during the previous president's term, um, mm -hmm. because of the decisions of the Senate majority leader at the time, who is still the Senate majority leader at the time now, um, and the way that many of those roles are being filled at this point, including by people with zero legal experience, uh, or zero actual experience within a court, um, that makes me very concerned that if you do decide to pursue this route, you may be disappointed at the results you see, right? Mm. And then here in Virginia, I know it hasn't been um, ideal either because unfortunately, 
again, I'm trying to stay partisan out of this as much as possible, but it's hard to do when we're talking about these sorts of topics because one party has shown a significant interest in stacking the courts in one direction than I think the other. And I think there's a variety of reasons why that might be, some of them good, some of them bad, so I'm gonna leave that out. Um, but here in Virginia, from what I understand, we may not have the best uh, composition of our own courts um, to, uh, to allow for an unbiased case to proceed either. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, a that's, I appreciate that feedback. Um, well, it's very risky. It's a high risk scenario. And I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, it's, it's a high risk and, um, a high reward, but I feel like you could get that reward somewhere else. Yeah. Well, because yeah. to Alex's point, if precedent is set, and it is not in your favor, then every other court case can then point to that and say, this court decided that, that's why we decide this. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and so to your point about going, you know, more legislative routes, right? And I, I recognize we've had, you know, a blue wave that started 2017 and has continued through 2019 here in Virginia. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it opens up possibilities when any flip in, in the house, you know, regardless of which party is in, in power when it, when there's a change in, in party, there's going to be opportunities there. Yeah. Um, we, we saw, you know, with some of our legislative uh, agenda this year that, you know, our, our champions were on the other side of the aisle from where you have historically worked. And that's fine, too. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we consider ourselves purple here, um, which is to say, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling like anybody to, to just get our voice heard. Um, yeah. Carrie Coiner uh, recently, she championed a bill in Chesterfield that would have, uh, well, that did win. It, it, it did get voted on um, Chesterfield Recovery High School. However, the financing for that is now in the in jeopardy. So, you know, we've got we've got a lot of good things on both sides of the aisle here in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we push for, you know, a, a personal thing of mine is always going to be, um, and I appreciate this as, as your your former boss, Skyler, you know, is really into elections. I'm very much in favor of making sure that restoration of rights becomes automatic once, um, you know, I've done the time. Once somebody has done the time, you know, they've done the crime, done the time, you know, why are we, why, why do I have to apply for these rights? You know, why is this embedded in our, in the Virginia constitution um, that I, you know, we have to make a change to that. So, you know, we've got Mamie Locke who's been putting the same resolution in, you know, just to, to start that process of constitutional change year after year after year. And this year, this specific, you know, past session didn't even get out of committee again. And we've got a mm -hmm. supposedly favorable, you know, committee, uh, it was favorable climate for change. So, you know, I, I talked to Skylar about that yesterday and said, you know, next year. So, well, all right, yeah. you know, that's great. But I, you know, <laughs> we had yeah. an election this year. Yeah. There's, um, there's a phrase I'm, I'm fond of, uh, that says politics is like boring, very small holes through a very stubborn piece of wood. And, uh, I forget the exact writer. He's somewhere here. I forget his name, but, um, the idea is that change comes in excruciating small increments to those who really want it. And I got that from the West wing, um, give it full credit. Um, and I, I hate to say it, but I do have to echo, uh, Skylar to this point because mm. look, one thing that I think in my personal wheelhouse, um, I would like us to see move to a full-time legislature. I think that the part-time session we have right now uh, does not uh, suit 
a climate where you need to get a lot done and you need to do it thoughtfully, right? Because you only have what, eight weeks or so. Um, and well, you've got a long time. Yeah. Right. Next and, year, six, yeah. And these are really, really long days that these legislators are, uh, are experiencing where they have what a hundred bills that they have to consider all at once. And I am a, a big believer that, you know, good intentions sometimes have unintended consequences. Um, I've certainly seen it in places that I've lived before Virginia. Uh, and that means you have to be really thoughtful and consider the downstream consequences of whenever you're doing anything, right? So that means you have even more limited of a scope of what you can do really, really well. And I don't think it's just the recovery community that unfortunately didn't see the progress they wanted to do. I also think we didn't make that much progress in another issue that's near and dear to me, which is labor laws. Um, I would love to see us move toward being a state that's uh, both good for businesses and good for workers. And, you know, it, it hasn't always been that case in Virginia. Um, and, and that's something that I think does need to be addressed by the legislature as well. But it, it's just sort of impossible to do when you have such limited ability to do so. So I know it's not what you want to hear, but I do have to kind of concur with Skylar that patience is a virtue on this one. I think the way that you can um, push your issue to the top of the docket is the ways we've talked about, which is building relationships with the legislators, right? And not just building relationships with the legislative champions, but building relationships with sort of the power brokers, the people on those specific committees um, mm -hmm. who are going to say whether something gets to see the light of day or not. Um, and, and really just beating the drum constantly and knowing it's going to have a couple setbacks and just trying to embrace the journey along the way as infuriating as that may be. Well, I have to tell you, I have to tell you a little bit about a bill that that we really helped work on. And then the Chris Atwood Foundation was uh, really, really instrumental on it. Um, uh, what is her name? Jenny. I'm forgetting her last name. Starts with an F. Um, Darn it, escaping me too. Uh, the 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 wife of Danny and Danny's bill, which is another bill that went through this year, but there was a, a bill, um, Senate Bill six six seven, and Alex and I talked about this a thousand times. We talked about it with Skyler mm -hmm. yesterday, and this bill had a, a ha this obviously originated in the Senate. There was a House bill that was brought up by uh, Delegate Carr, mm -hmm. and that bill died in committee. It died in subcommittee, actually. And so when the Senate bill passed the Senate 40 to zero, um, we, we identified who the people were in the subcommittee um, of criminal uh, uh, courts of justice. What is, it, what is the committee called? Criminal justice uh, committee there. And we identified who voted against the similar bill that was there. And we actually targeted those people. This was actually a really awesome example of, of being more efficient. I think, you know, just, not just me, but everyone around that worked on this, but I got to tell you, you know, when it came right down to it, um, it took, uh, it took me running out of the room and grabbing mm -hmm. um, delegate Herring who was leaving. Um, and I said, please stay for the subcommittee vote because we don't know that we have the votes on this bill. She says, no, we have it. I said, no, no, no. The same bill died in subcommittee, you know, a couple weeks ago, the House version. She said, okay. And she stayed. Now, it turned out we didn't need her vote because one of the guys who voted against it wasn't in the room, which was awesome, too. But at the end of the day, when it came to full committee, because uh, it did get out of subcommittee, when it came to the full committee a couple of days later, Mike Mullen 
um, Delegate Mullen down in Williamsburg, who is a, uh, a Commonwealth assistant, uh, assistant Commonwealth attorney down there, he actually changed his vote and publicly mm-hmm. said, you know what? I'm sorry. I voted wrong. And I thought that was, to me, you know, and everybody else in the room, that was astonishing, you know, that we had that impact. You yeah. know, I did, Alex did, Jenny did, all the Chris Atwood Foundation, because we did all that work to make sure that this Senate bill, which, by the way, was a, a better enhanced a good Samaritan law, you know, provided mm-hmm. for um, better, you know, better laws surrounding how we handle overdoses, mm-hmm. you know, people mm-hmm. needing emergency assistance. This is a particularly interesting bill to me because it, because I've, you know, I've known plenty of people who have died and not had phone calls, you know, made because they were worried about going to jail or something. So, well, that was also one of those examples of something that, that there was already something set in place, but it wasn't good enough. Just right. as kind of as as David was saying, like Rome wasn't built in a day, so right. you have to kind of take what you can get year after year until you finally do end up getting what you want. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and, you know, we, we we jumped in at the very end. I mean, we we had, you know plenty of people who had helped along or built that before we got there. We were just, you know, a couple of voices in the choir at, at that point. And it was a really powerful experience for me. It really helped me to see how change can be effective. And, and I've, I've been doing things on and off for, you know, decades now. So um, I see, we do have a comment up here. Are you saying, let's see from Kelly, Kelly widows. Are you saying that our elected officials are listening to a few rather than the people that they represent? question, David. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, And I think I should preface it by saying these are all individual, unique human beings. So I don't think that there's a blanket yes or no that I can give to this this question in general. Um, And I think it also gets to another point that I hear about politicians all the time is they're either all holistic and or sorry, altruistic, or they're all corrupt. I think it's, it's more a complex question that people actually have their own calculus within them of different competing incentives. And so I think that uh, because these are all human beings, um, they look in a perfect world, um, an elected official would be able to take the pulse of their constituents without any sort of outside factor, any sort of outside influence and know exactly what they should vote um, based upon how they feel and based upon their own moral compass, right? But the reality is that's practically impossible to do because I think we are all conflicted about our own moral compasses all the time. And because it is hard to actually listen to absolutely everyone because everyone has a million different voices and your brain can only catch so many different signals, right? Which is why folks like you, Nathan, and you, Alex, and doing this sort of thing is really important because what you're doing is you're effectively becoming lobbyists. And I'm not saying like the dirty, you know, ugly version of lobbyist that is out there in the popular culture, which I think is sometimes a little misunderstood. But I'm talking about people who lobby for their own specific cause, right? And they make themselves become those individuals who are the signals that stick out of that mass amount of noise that every single legislator has to listen to every single day, right? And and I look back to um, one of my own experiences was uh, for this campaign called The Action. Uh, And this was all about um, trying to persuade Congress to vote to end the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy uh, in 2012. This was right after we'd reelected Barack Obama. I got enlisted on this thing. And for those of you who may not remember, but we had this whole thing called the fiscal cliff that was going to happen. We had the military sequester. It looked like the whole economy was going to blow up. 
funny how things look different in retrospective, but it is what it is. Um, but we had to figure out how to get uh, a majority of Republican members of the House of Representatives to vote to sunset the uh, tax cuts that have been given to some of the wealthiest Americans uh, under George W. Bush. And what we had to do was we had to figure out, okay, what do these legislators actually pay attention to? Because if I come up there and I'm like, hey, I was you know, the regional field director for Barack Obama, and let me tell you, I think you need to end these Bush tax cuts, they're not gonna <laughs> listen to me, right? Um, what instead might happen is they might listen to the local newspaper that is seen as nonpartisan, right? Um, and if they see that their name is being dragged through the mud because the people in this area really seem to not like this particular uh, legislative effect, then it changes their incentive structure because they're like, well, you know, on a career end, uh-oh, I'm not sure I'm going to get reelected. On a personal end, ugh, I don't like seeing my name get dragged through the mud, right? Mm -hmm. so what we did was we organized letter writing campaigns. We organized uh, protests outside of uh, kind of landmarks where we tried to get earned media. So what that means is a person like me calls the local newspaper, say, hey, I've got about 20 folks or so who are composed of X, Y, and Z, um, you know, either small business owners or suburban, um, you know, uh, PTA folks or something like that. That's something that I think is going to be a hook and, and get those folks to show up and uh, pay attention to, to what we're doing. And then hopefully we get that story and hopefully it shows up in Congressperson A's newspaper and they look at it and go like, oh crap, I can't keep doing this. I'm going to lose my election or oh crap, I can't keep doing this. I'm not even gonna be able to get a you know table at my favorite restaurant. <laughs> Damn, That's nobody's getting tables. Don't be losing the feed? Okay. Um, no, I, I see that. And, and, you know, to that, Kelly follows up with, so how do we, the general public, how do we, the general public make an impact without developing these relationships you talked about? You know, how can we now, of course, okay, I have advocacy in my job title. Um, and, you know, Alex is, a, is now becoming a full time, or at least he's here full time as, as, and becoming staff. But, you know, John Q. Public, how do how does John Q. Public make an impact, you know, without becoming a professional lobbyist? Well, I think if, that, you know, it, it really requires organizing, right? Yeah. Because what I'm trying to get across is you are trying to find a way of making your voice or your message be a signal out of all that noise, right? And, and so what you can do is instead of just having five people saying one thing that are just slightly different from each other, mm -hmm. right? Finding those five people, getting them together, and get them to speak with one voice so it becomes a more uh, easily understandable, comprehensive message, right? Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, Nathan, I, I'm curious how you would feel about this, but uh, I have found that in my organizing, because again, I, I, did, I was not born into a political family. I did not have, you know, tons of political connections coming up or anything along those lines. Honestly, I was a, a sales guy who was pissed off about the housing crisis and was complaining to anyone that would listen. <laughs> yeah. What okay. was fascinating was how easy it was to get in the doors of actual power, right? Mm. Because I found that when I just said, hey, I want to volunteer, a political campaign looked at me and went like, 
oh yeah, please, we, we need people to be doing this, right? <laughs> or when I went to an event and there was a city council person walking around, that city council person is just a human being, right? right. And they oftentimes are trying to stuff their own face with like the little snacks that are there, or they're bored looking at their phone on the corner or something along those lines. They are just human beings. You can talk to them. You can have a conversation with them. And they're more likely to hear you out because they're scared of losing your vote. Hmm. And, and and I guess just to jump in real quick, people are more willing to listen to someone who's genuine and not trying to leverage something out of someone. And yeah. so I think that that you have a, a certain authenticity to you that that, you know, has created a resume as long and 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 impressive as yours is, is because you seem like a very, very genuine person. So people are more likely to listen to people who are being authentic. They're not like, oh, this guy's clearly just trying to use his vote to get something out of me. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I appreciate that. Thank you for the compliment. Um, I'm not sure it's totally earned, but I appreciate it anyways. Um, but why do I come across as authentic is perhaps because you've heard some of my stories and you've heard some of the values that I'm conveying, mm -hmm. right? And those values tell you a lot about me. So this gets back to that first point we we're talking about in the very beginning. You got to start sharing your story because that's mm -hmm. how people know that like, this is what this person's about. So when I listen to them, I know they're not just trying to play me for X, Y, and Z. This is how they actually feel. This is what they actually believe. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So everything we've just been talking about now probably relates a little bit back to this project that you're that you just started again. But, but could could you give us that uh, website once again? Yeah, absolutely. It's scrappyorganizing.com. Now, scrappyorganizing.com is that for the individual or is it for people like me in a, you know who are trying to build coalitions? Is it for anybody? Who are you targeting with this? I am trying to write it for anyone with an interest in organizing, right? Whether that is a person who's just fed up with how things work right now and want to change things and want to find some way of taking that power for themselves or people who have been working at this for a very long time and just are struggling to figure out how to retool their mindset to how can you talk to voters without actually knocking on their door? Because you obviously yeah. can't do that at this point. So it's designed to be written at really kind of this basic common level. I try not to get too technical on it. I try to include links when I'm using some technical term uh, and not belabor the point, not have to describe it as much as uh, you know some other places might. And I also want to make this really kind of interactive and, and I'm always asking for feedback. Um, that was part of the reason why I started that Facebook group is because, you know. I love the feedback that you've gotten there. Well, I, you got to model the behavior you want to see others do, right? So if I'm telling yeah. other people to create a Facebook group, I got to do it myself. You can't ask people to do what you're not willing to do. That's just yeah. not how organizing works. <laughs> um, I, I remember one of those sales jobs I had, uh, there was this vice president, right? He makes like several million dollars a year. And the reason why I'm doing that hand gesture is he was out front sweeping the stairs every single morning. And I was like, what are you doing, Scott? And he said, I am making sure that my business looks as clean as it is. And I am responsible for doing it because I can't ask anyone else to do it if I'm not going to. And that's just something I've kind of internalized. And so uh, I think that that has guided my organizing along the way. But some of the topics that I'm talking about in here are things like the basics. First of all, 
how do you set up your social media accounts, right? Mm -hmm. And why, and what are some best practices that you should do doing it? Um, why do Facebook groups work? Uh, for that, I drew upon some of my experiences with uh, Amy Klobuchar's team um, mm -hmm. and how when I came on board, there was already a, this group of 600 volunteers or so uh, who had just been organizing themselves thanks to some early work that the campaign had done in setting up this Facebook group. Um, and then this most recent one is actually about webcasting, um, which is uh, kind of ironic, right? Uh, I thought it was kind of amusing that uh, Nathan asked to speak to me as I was working on that one. Um, Oversaturation of media. We went up to, we were talking about that. <laughs> you were yeah, talking yeah, about that. Yeah. But I mean, also like, you know, getting back to um, something we were talking about before this show even began, there are some politicians out there who have really struggled with their webcasting and <laughs> they're just making easy mistakes that could easily be fixed if you just put in a little bit of preparation beforehand. And oftentimes it's not that a person is, you know, forgetful or um, I would say bad at their job or anything along those lines. It's it sometimes you just never knew to think about this, right? And that's because you were built around this whole paradigm. Now you have to deal with this new paradigm. What do you do? Well, I've had enough, you know, fortune and misfortune to be working around some of these paradigms for a very long time, um, making some of the mistakes, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. So I just want to pass that forward on to others because, you know, getting back to what I was talking about, I think this is a really important year. And I, I would like to see us emerge from this crisis a better, more equitable, more humane nation with a much stronger social safety net. Um, and I think the only way we do that is we make sure that we elect really good people who feel the same way. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, as we as we come to a, a close here, um, I really appreciate you coming on. I I know that, you know, in recovery, it's important to have connections. And we as a recovery community organization, a recovery community organization, we've been challenged by the 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 canceled meetings you know the, the fellowship meetings that are are vital links to recovery and what i've seen is this amazing the, the amazing resourcefulness um, and resilience of the recovery community as we've built you know our zoom catalogs mm -hmm. of meetings um and just seeing people come together in ways i never really expect to come together um it's it's really actually, you know, from a, from aside from the actual horrors that are happening out in the in the in the world with with the deaths and the and the sickness, um, it's inspiring in a way, you know, for us to be able to, you know, personally, I've been able to um, reprioritize or at least you know things that were a priority, you know, just why am I worrying? Why am I spending three hours a week on this project that? doesn't benefit me, doesn't benefit the organization. And I don't even like doing, and I, and I'm like, why am I doing this? All I have to do is sit in a chair and listen and say, this is McShin. That's what we do. And this is how we vote. That's all I have to do. And yet I'll sit there and I'll take on these projects and I'm like, what the heck? So it, I'm really grateful for that sort of natural cleansing. Um, that's, that's kind of happened with this process for me. And that's without injecting any Lysol. Um, <laughs> Um, please don't do that. Um, no, actually, I, I actually I have a uh, at least a, a last question for you, David. It's oh, yeah. it's somewhat personal. So um, I know that you have a hell of a resume. Um, 
you seem to be doing a lot of different other things and multitasking, but still have a positive yet pragmatic approach to things. And as someone who like currently says yes to anything, whatever anyone's anyone's given to me, mm -hmm. um, do you kind of prioritize your stuff more by um, what needs to be done now and what is like, I guess, more um, timely or kind of by what you're more passionate about at the time? <sighs> <laughs> a really good question. I think it's always a balancing act and I'm not going to say I've got it perfectly right. I don't know if anyone, any of us do. Right. Um, I think that uh, passion is what makes the world go around mm -hmm. and you've got to find time, find a way of prioritizing that for yourself or else you'll go insane or you'll turn to other things, you know, things that are not as productive, things that can be a little bit more um, consequential in, in not so great ways. Um, but you've also got to recognize that if you don't do the things that are absolutely necessary um, at a given moment, then those can be consequential in some pretty bad ways as well. So for instance, if I don't wash the dishes, right, <laughs> right after my meal, um, that'll result in either I have to wash the frying pan to make the next meal, which is always annoying, right? Cause the food's all crusted on there. Um, or, uh, my coworker, um, will, will not be pleased. You know what I mean? Um, and that will make my life, what you mean? <laughs> yeah, my life less pleasant than it be at that exact moment. So it's, it's a, a wound I can avoid self-inflicting. So. I, what I try to do every single day is I, I try to, and again, I'm not perfect about this. I, it's what we aspirational versus realistic, right? Um, but I try to put together a to-do list every single day and look at it and think just really for a moment or two, what are the things that I need to get accomplished today? What are the things I want to get accomplished today? And I try to stack rank that. And I fail just as much as I succeed, just like every single other person. But another of my organizing mantras that I've internalized for myself is it's about progress, not perfection, right? <laughs> um, this is a really trying moment for lots of us. And I know that we all hear the stories about how Shakespeare wrote King Lear in quarantine and Einstein discovered the theory of relativity and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't matter. This is a moment where we are all trying to survive and we are all trying to get by. And if we do well, amazing. If we don't do well, that's okay too. You gotta be patient with yourself and you gotta just try for the next day, just being a little bit better, just a little bit better, just a little bit better. And before you know it, um, you can be really amazed with all the things you can accomplish. No, absolutely. I totally agree. I've been advocating to other people that like use this time to pick up something new, something that you've always said you wanted to do, or even, even to myself personally, like, Hey, I've always wanted to get into podcasts. And now I have this time and forum to actually do that instead of, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have any excuse when there's nothing to do. <laughs> totally. I love that. Yeah. Alex, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I've naturally been doing new things or at least getting reacquainted with old things um that i haven't spent time on and it's kind of been a it's an incredible blessing actually very good question i, I just want to make a quick point about the dishes david <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you may, i i'm i'm a house leader uh in one of the mcshin recovery residences so i i, I have seven guys i live with and I, I we just i just moved to a new house 
uh, we opened up. It's over in Rodney Willis district, actually. I'm pointing yeah. over there. Yeah. So um, <laughs> just pointing over there. <laughs> um, in my house, if you don't do the dishes after you eat, there ain't gonna be no dishes. I'm gonna throw that shit away. <laughs> now I know you. I know. I know your coworker isn't gonna do that to you. I don't think she will. Um, however, I'm just telling you. <laughs> Um, it would go with me before it go on the trash can. We're very frugal here. Oh, well, there, there you go. There you go. I like that. Anybody who, um, anybody in recovery will probably recognize something you just said. And a lot of things that you say, which is why I like you so much, resonates with me as a person in recovery. When you said progress, not perfection, that's something we say in recovery. It's, it's built into the literature of some of the recovery literature. So I appreciate that you said that. Um, Oh, yeah, we have a good question still. I'm sorry. Oh, I guess before we go, uh, Debbie Rosenbaum. Um, hey, Debbie. Debbie's uh, one of our board members. Um, she's also a, a, a regular listener. Uh, thank you for, no, what did she say? Stories have power. Faces and voices of recovery are powerful and need to be seen and heard. Great dialogue, guys. Um, not so much a question, but thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, Stephanie, Stephanie Bellinger. Do we know Stephanie? <laughs> um, Stephanie is uh, is also a good listener and she's a, a fan of the organization. Thank you for sharing that. We're all just trying to get through it. Um, I need to start. Don't. She said, start doing that. No, start doing talking that. about throwing away the dishes. Oh, <laughs> now you're giving people bad ideas, Nathan. <laughs> it's a good idea. It keeps me happy. Well, you know. <laughs> um, one thing that I know that you do, you and your wife do, that. Uh, uh, really resonates with me as a person in recovery. And I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by this and what you guys did recently. And I've been asking a question of all of the guests this week, and I'm going to ask you the same question. And it's something you already do. What are you grateful for today? So I'm going to back up for a second, give credit where credit <laughs> is due. All of that goes to that amazing woman in that room right there. She's the one who constantly is reminding me to, to be grateful for the little things and, and to be thankful for what we have, especially since there are so many who don't have what we have, particularly right now. Um, so what I'm grateful for is, uh, first of all, the opportunity to come speak with you um, and uh, talk about organizing and talk about making the world a better place. It's what really makes me very, very happy. So I love doing that and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do so. Um, but I think I'm also just grateful for the human spirit, you know, I, and I realize that that sounds kind of corny and hokey, but I watch this thing called Some Good News every uh, week. I don't know if you guys do. It's by John Krasinski. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw mm -hmm. one of those episodes. He's hilarious. And, you know, I, I'm just I, – I guess what drives me every single day is I'm always optimistic about what is ahead of us and not what's behind us. And I think it's because humans really are – capable of incredible kindness to each other when they just let all the other things shed. And I'm grateful that we have that built into us and that I think that's what's going to get us through this. Good. Yeah. I like that. You know, as we seek to find that which connects us and not that which divides us, I think we do become better as a society. So David, um, our guest is David Aldridge. His website is Scrappy Organizer. Dot com? Is that right? Organizing.com. 
scappyorganizing.com. Sorry, sorry, David. No worries whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> we'll put that in the notes somewhere. Um, I want to thank you again for coming, and uh, please thank your lovely wife for letting me have you for an hour. And I want to thank, of course, Todd, our producer over there, who's been monitoring everything and making Thanks, sure Todd. that we all sound good. It's been an absolute pleasure, David. <laughs> it's been a pleasure with all of my end. Seriously, thank you so much for doing this, guys. Now, make sure you stick around because we have some really good closing music here. But again, I'm Nathan Mitchell, and this is uh, Get in the Herd. I want to put a shout out to tomorrow evening at 9 p.m. Get in the Herd. After hours is. Uh, <laughs> I got, I'm sorry, I cracked myself up. Get in the Herd after hours. Uh, tomorrow's guest is going to be da <laughs> it's uh, Daniel Schneider. Daniel, Dan, Daniel Schneider, he yes. is um, he is the uh, um, featured in a documentary on Netflix right now called The Pharmacist. Um, John Schinholzer will be hosting that with Danny with Danny uh, Schneider, and also um, oh, just Miss America, you know, just Miss America. No biggie. Should be on the show. No big deal. Miss America for late night after hours. Um, anyway, thank you on that. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you for getting the herd. Thank you all very much. <laughs>